This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kingship of Jesus Christ. Lord, we celebrate it, we lift it up, we glorify it. We pray that you would help us to enter into it today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. The Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So this Sunday is the last Sunday in ordinary time. The last Sunday before Advent. I said this many, many times before, so some of you are probably tired of hearing me say it. But, but for Christians, January 1st is not that big of a deal because our new year comes a month earlier in Advent. And as we come to the close of this Christian year, our last Sunday in our liturgical calendar is called Christ the King Sunday. That's today. And the theme of Jesus' kingship, which we celebrate together on Christ the King Sunday, is one that uniquely sums up the gospel and the nature of our Christian hope. And all the other Sundays, actually, in the Christian calendar are, in a sense, unpacking what it means that we worship Jesus, the true king, who is sovereign over all, but whose kingship is unlike any other authority and dominion that the world has ever known. The incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the ascension, Pentecost, the second coming of Christ, all these milestones that we spiral around during the Christian year are all sort of different data points that illustrate how unique Jesus' kingship is. They show, as he says in our gospel passage today, that he and his kingdom are not from this world. And that therefore, praise be to God that they are not identifiable with any worldly regime. So on this Sunday, we're invited to take a close look at Christ's kingship and his glorious distinctiveness from all the kingdoms of this world and how his kingship trains us to think differently about politics than the world does. David Bennett writes, We must never forget that Christ radically redefined and transformed the concept of kingship. Remember what he says to the disciples? The Gentile lords rule it over them. Rule it over their followers, but it shall not be so among you. He radically redefines and transforms kingship. The thing that distinguishes Christ's kingship from any other is what the Bible calls righteousness. Righteousness can be defined this way. It's when the people of God do the will of God because they love what God loves. I'll say it again. Righteousness is when the people of God do the will of God, because they love what God loves. So righteousness is an ethical verdict. It's one that concerns not just behavior, but also intention. So by that definition, the prophet Isaiah can look around and survey the people of Israel and say, there's no one righteous, not even one. But Christ is that one righteous son of man. And we get that interesting passage in Daniel that says he has an authority and a dominion that is everlasting. But that also means that Jesus stands in judgment over all merely earthly kingdoms and governments, and all of them will pass away when at his second coming the true kingdom becomes visible. So that that reading from Revelation this morning, it's a powerful reading. And I wonder 
How did it strike you when the passage names Jesus Christ as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth? But then it goes on to say, look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. They'll mourn. They're going to wail when they see him come in his glory? If I'm being honest, I mean, for me, these kinds of passages always initially strike a bit of a sour note. I'm reading along and I'm positively exulting in Christ's majesty. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He made us, his church, to be a kingdom, to be priests. He's grafted us Gentile sinners into the body of Israel so that we might also fulfill that calling given to Israel as they were delivered from slavery in the Exodus. He's going to return in glory and he's going to fill the earth with the presence of God. By the way, that's what that cloud imagery is about. Remember that every time we see that cloud in scripture, that's an image that describes the Shekinah, the glory of God coming to his people. Man, that's beautiful. All of these notes swell into a glorious and majestic symphony. And then right there at the crescendo, there's this concerning discordant note sounded. All the tribes of the earth will wail. Evidently, the kings and the authorities and the dominions of this earth are not going to find the coming of this king to be good news. And for John the divine, the seer exiled in Patmos, who, by the way, I believe to be John, the disciple that Jesus loved, the fact that those tribes will not find Jesus' coming to be good news is itself good news. He's rejoicing in that fact. John is looking forward to Christ's judgment of the nations. But here's the thing. John isn't cruel. He's not some misanthropic hater. He's clear-sighted. He's realistic. He's a person who understands what's going on around him. John can see that the world around him is spiritually dark and that what the nations love is not the righteousness of God. The revelation of St. John belongs to a genre of Jewish and Christian literature which is called apocalyptic. I don't know about you, but when I hear that word apocalyptic, I tend to think about the end of the world. If you grew up Southern Baptist and dispensationalist like me, maybe you also think about the rapture and all the scary stuff that's supposed to happen around that. And I wanted to make sure that I was like good and saved so I didn't get left behind and have to suffer the tribulation. Really, all that stuff, though, has nothing to do with the apocalypse of St. John the Divine. Apocalypse in Greek means an unveiling. It's a vision that opens up to the seer and to us who get to witness that vision, the reality that stands behind the reality that we can see and touch and taste. For that reason, it's always highly symbolic. It uses images drawn from the creation to express realities that surpass comprehension. And it's also characterized by antithesis, and conflict, because there really is a spiritual battle between good and evil, light and dark at the heart of reality. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against powers that are demonic, but it is a battle. And this spiritual battle involves the nations. There's an animating force behind politics in every age that is dark, that is demonic, that must be purged. The nations are imaged in apocalyptic literature as terrifying beasts that devour and destroy. We see that both in Daniel's vision and in John's revelation today. But the apocalypses tell us with an unwavering conviction that they are subject to the Ancient of Days. The nations are all under his authority. 
The living God controls them. Daniel is a prophet with complete trust in the absolute sovereignty of God over history and over the nations. And all the prophets share this conviction. Our psalm from today shares this conviction. God deposes kings and raises up others, as Daniel 2.21 says. And the scriptures give us this consistent political theology throughout. The nations are a mix both of good things and of great wickedness. And no kingdom of this earth should ever be confused with the kingdom of God. The Ancient of Days stands in judgment against the wickedness of all the nations. Only of his kingdom is it said, your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. That's what Psalm 93 affirms today. And the silence of God before the injustice and the unrighteousness and the wicked compromises and alliances of the nations is not approval. Rather, he is allowing the nations of the earth to fulfill their role in his plan, but then they will decline, their strength will wither, and they will fall into the rubbish heap of history. That is the judgment that Daniel and John's revelation proclaim. Daniel's vision of the four beasts, which comes right before our reading today, the most powerful beast, which is you kind of get a glimpse of in the reading from today, has great iron teeth and ten horns, and one of the horns is singled out, and it proclaims all of this arrogant boasting. And God just shuts it down like it's not a thing because God is in charge of history and of the nations. That's the unwavering conviction of Scripture. And there's this interesting note that sounded at the end of our passage in Daniel. There's one coming like a son of man who will be exalted, who will receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And look, the dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And only the kingdom of God is said to be everlasting, right? Psalm 93 says that. So the kingdom that's given to the son of man is that kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus embodies that kingdom. The third century theologian Origen says he is the autobasileia, the kingdom of God in the flesh. When we return to John's description of Jesus, we see he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. His kingdom is everlasting and it will have no end. And when Christ returns in glory and riding on the clouds, when he comes with the justice of his kingdom, it will be true justice. It will be true righteousness. It will unmask and destroy all the dark, false visions of justice and the utopias that have taken shape in the imaginations of human beings on this earth. I mean, so far, so good, right? That sounds awesome. I'm tracking with John. But when I imagine the justice that Christ's kingdom will bring, I imagine it as something that all but the darkest and most satanic souls will long for and want to receive. Right? It's like the culmination of the best dreams of humanity. But John seems to be saying that that will actually not be the case. That many will find the kingship that they see in Jesus, the righteousness that they see in his person, to be repulsive. Now, there's something, I think, about the formation of Americans, and including American Christians, that makes this a tough pill for us to swallow. And I want to name this problem as sentimentality. It's a vision of humanity as basically reasonable and good and able to choose the good when it's presented to us clearly. Sentimentality. Clearly, this is not the vision of humanity in its fallen state that we are offered in Scripture. 
Our state is actually so hopeless and enslaved by sin and death that God himself must become incarnate and die in order for us to be delivered. This enslavement is not just an individual reality. It's a corporate one as well. That's what the beasts are about. We are all tinged with and implicated by our participation in a social order that malforms us and warps us horribly. And yet, we Americans struggle not to gloss over this. I mean, part of that, I think, is kind of hyper-individualism. But we're also a people who got our start as a nation through revolution. And we're perpetually tempted to believe that the clock can be restarted, that history does not bind us, and that starting over and wiping the slate clean and forgetting is entirely virtuous. Peter Lightheart says, I think quite rightly that the American is distinguished from the rest of the nations by a boundlessly optimistic sense of possibility and inventiveness, an extraordinary, extraordinary willingness to try, fail, and try again that has been the astonishment and envy of the world. Hey, that's the good in our national spirit. We can claim that and recognize that. It's a good thing. At the same time, Lightheart says the American has a dark side. He is utterly confident in the rightness of his every case, infatuated with violence, insatiably hungry for novelty, not greedy for stuff so much as greedy for new stuff. He assumes that if the world were rightly ordered, it would look like a global America. And he is bewildered by people who resist this utopia. Hey, do we recognize ourselves in that language, in that image? We American Christians know that America is not the kingdom of God but we suspect that it's at least part of the way there. When the kingdom of God comes, we think, we'll recognize it and rejoice in it, as will all people of goodwill, because the way has been prepared by the achievements of America. It will be like seeing the completion with some minor adjustments of a masterwork that was begun by us, but which we didn't have the strength to bring to its completion. Most American Christians don't walk around with a strong sense of antithesis between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of America that John says should characterize us. I mean, a lot of us are even resistant to the idea that America is any sort of kingdom at all. After all, we govern ourselves. We don't have a king. The earliest American Protestants were animated against British royalism by the slogan, no king but Christ. We started over. And I think it's this largely implicit and pre-theoretical sense that we're somehow exempted from the apocalyptic visions of the nations as beasts that goes a long way toward explaining why we don't rejoice with St. John that the nations will wail when the Alpha and the Omega comes with glory. Maybe now, in our present moment, we're just waking up to the fact that America actually is a great and vast empire, one like Rome, which has accomplished great good, and which has at the same time been responsible for unspeakable evil. Maybe the emptiness and the spiritual darkness that many of us now sense around us has sobered us up enough that we can read Jesus' confrontation with Pilate with fresh eyes. We can see Pilate not only as a representative of the empire of Rome, but of all powerful empires in history. Pilate has been told by the Jewish authorities that Jesus presents himself as the king of the Jews. Pilate's probing Jesus on this point because if he actually has claimed this, he's a threat to Rome. But Jesus says back to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, he says, has an authority and a power that you can't understand because you only understand peace through violence. 
Peace through the sword. That's the kind of kingship that you understand. You don't understand righteousness, Jesus is telling Pilate. Jesus says, here's how you know that my kingdom cannot be identified with any earthly kingdom. My followers don't take up arms to bring it about. Rather, they bring it about by witnessing to the truth with their words and in their lives. Pilate is deeply confused. He's still trying to understand, what the heck are you talking about, Jesus? So he says, so you're saying you're a king? And what Jesus says in response should be, should be translated or interpreted this way. King is your word, not mine. He's not saying he's not a king. But what he is saying is that his kingship looks nothing like the kingdoms of this earth. Here's what he says. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who has listened to the voice of Jesus, the true king, he says, longs for his kingdom of righteousness in which every heart is attuned to the will of God and does the will of God. Everyone who listens to his voice comes to feel palpably the distinction between the kingdoms that they live in and the kingdom of Jesus. As Americans, if we listen to his voice, we will come to feel the dissonance between the Christian we and the American we. The longing for a different kingdom will come to make us feel like strangers in a strange land. There will come a sense of distance between what those around us value and what we have come to value because we're people of the kingdom. And we'll also feel an aching sense of incompleteness in ourselves because we recognize the distance between who we are and who we are meant to be. We are still filled with sin. We do not yet embody the righteousness of Jesus' kingdom. Everyone who listens to Jesus' voice is on the way to becoming a witness to the truth, not only with our lips, but also in our lives. And I want to be clear about this. If we belong to Jesus by faith, we're safe. Do you believe that? We're safe. The judgment that falls upon our sin in this kingdom of righteousness is not the same thing as condemnation. We're safe in Christ, and therefore we don't have to hide from each other and hide from him. We can confess our sins. But we're also not satisfied with who we are. We long to be complete. And so everyone who listens to his voice also has a profound sense of relief when they consider his coming in glory. Relief. Everyone who listens to his voice understands then also why the nations will wail when they see him coming because they don't value or desire the righteousness that he is bringing. So I think the question for us today is this. How do we listen to his voice? How do we retrain ourselves not to love and desire what the kingdom of America presents to us as good? but instead love the righteousness of the kingdom of God. It's a radical and embracing call. I think if we want to love the righteousness of God and long for its coming, we have to resist our native tendency towards sentimentality. We need a deeper and a more exacting sense of the gravity of sin. 
We can begin to take stock of the sinfulness, not only of our own selves, but of our own past as a nation. Seeing not only the goodness of our past national achievements, but also becoming with the bestial character of our own nation. We can begin to reckon with how our history and our values as a nation have shaped us as individuals and have added to the darkness of our own hearts. The season of Advent is an excellent opportunity to cultivate this sense of sin. It is a season which prepares us not only to appreciate the necessity of Christ's first coming, but also to anticipate his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. We've largely lost sight of this in the West, but Advent has until very recently been practiced as a penitential season. And I think it's important for us to revive this. What would it look like for us to fast from good things in this season and to use our time to meditate on the sinfulness that gave rise to Christ's incarnation? What would it look like to hear his voice that we would feel a profound sense of relief when we imagine him coming in glory? We need each other so much in this task. Could we become truth-tellers to each other? People who help each other long for a hope other than the one that's offered to us by politicians, corporations, and the media. This is actually what the Eucharist is for, that we might become people animated by the hope of his coming again. Paul says that every time we receive this Eucharist together, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's telling us that we're proclaiming the incompleteness of who we are and longing for what we are meant to be, and we're receiving the grace to persevere in that hope. W.H. Auden says, quite penetratingly, I think, that what is real about us all is that each of us is waiting. When we take this Eucharist together, we are developing the patience to listen to Christ's voice, to wait for him, to refuse to be satisfied with anything less than the righteousness of his kingdom, the righteousness of that king. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your kingdom and your righteousness. Your people long for it. Amen.